G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. We'll be reading today from Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers of all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem. Among the captives carried away was Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed... And when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favour. He quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had committed commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king and after 12 months and under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second home in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther and the daughter, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. 
Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Caitlin. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, if you're new or Nick, it's a lead, uh, if you're new or visiting, I'm Nick. I get to be the lead pastor of this church. Uh, we're a part of a movement of churches, all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. So thanks for joining us today. Hey, last week was a big one in the life of our church, literally the biggest ever. Uh, we had 525 people come to our services last week, and we had 141 children. And so you can pray for our City Kids volunteers that we see them again, that they come up from downstairs alive and well. Uh, but I just wanted to, before we get into the text, uh, I guess, uh, bid your patience with us, in, in a sense. Uh, first, uh, obviously, more people means more complexity. Uh, it means more, as Caitlin said, opportunities to, to serve or more need for it. And so maybe you're here and you are one of the newcomers to us this year uh, and you want to get connected. We want to get you connected. Maybe you might think about not waiting till you're connected to start serving, but start getting connected by serving. We'd love to have you uh, on one of our teams. Uh, and second, we want you to be in our gospel communities. Uh, as Luke said, the communities of life, love, and maturity. We want you to go deep with people, with the word. Uh, but with a lot of people wanting to join at once, uh, we would love your patience in finding new living rooms to meet in, uh, finding new leaders to serve uh, those groups, uh, and plugging people in. So please uh, bear with us as we help connect everyone as well as we would love uh, you to be connected. We've got a lot to get through today, so we're going to dive into Esther 2. I trust that you're there with me already uh, in your Bibles or on your phones. Uh, we are concluding the introduction to the book of Esther. Last week I said it was a two-week introduction. Uh, today we meet the second half of that introduction. If you were with us last week, we, we saw this portrait of power as we looked and met uh, at King Ahasuerus or, or Xerxes, and we particularly focused in on the context that the author of Esther wanted us to see that she was going to rise up within. There was opulence, there was glamour, there was splendour, there was pomp, and exposed the, the worldly power, the citadel of worldly power there in ancient Persia. For all its pomp, we also saw that it was insecure and it was inhumane. But praise God, there is an alternative kingdom. Then in the midst of the citadel of worldly power, you and I get to join in with these uh, people who trusted the Lord back then, the kingdom that God himself is building, the citadel that he is building amongst us. And so as we venture from there into Esther chapter 2, the story continues. Today, we're not going to focus so much on the context, but we get to meet the characters. They're going to play a big part in our story. It reminds me of uh, an activity that me and my kids do uh, when we're preparing for bed, not every night, uh, but it's a game of story salad. You might know story salads. A salad, you throw ingredients together, you come out with something to eat. 
A story salad is you throw words, random words together, and you've got to make up a story with those words. And so the kids might give me some words randomly, maybe crocodile, soccer, toothpaste. You've got to make a story including those three words. Ordinarily, they're giving me words poos, wheeze, and bum bum. But for the sake of the story, crocodile. And then you've got to craft a story out of that. Well, what we see in the book of Esther is God is is kind of showing himself off to us of how good he is at the activity, at the game of story salad. Sometimes we think the Old Testament is this kind of random, uh, kind of biographical, historical account of all the things that that just happened to have occurred before Jesus came and dwelt amongst us. Esther helps us see that there's a great purpose. There's a great divine author weaving together these seemingly disconnected moments, times in history, kingdoms, and yet he's using all of them to craft this incredible story. And in his story salad, God, as we've heard already, isn't a word that's mentioned in the book of Esther. It's not a word that he could have used in this part of the story, and that's because he is the one we're going to see who is writing the story. And so we're going to turn to Esther 2. We're going to finish this intro. We're going to meet the characters, but through it, we're going to see this bigger story that God is weaving together for us. So we're going to walk through this chapter. Uh, I've got three particular headings for us related to the story that God is writing. Let's first meet Mordecai and the story of God. Mordecai and the story of God. Esther 2 starts out this way. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. If you were with us last week, you remember the, the, the drunken party that King Ahasuerus had thrown, and in his boozy boasting, uh, he was there with his boys, and he wanted to impress them, and so he said, bring me the queen, Vashti, but she wasn't having it. And so because she wasn't having it, he was particularly offended, and so he took the crown from her, and she became really the ancient equivalent of what we read about King Henry VIII doing uh, 500 years ago, where she was no longer in the limelight, she was, she was just gone. Now, the phrase here at the beginning, after these things, is doing a lot of work for us because really we're we're three years removed from the events of Esther chapter 1. We know that by some of the dating later on in the chapter. So it's not that he's just been hung over for three years now. It's not that he's had amnesia and he's just suddenly remembered, oh, Vashti. Rather, we know that there's some water that's gone under the bridge here between Esther 1 and 2, and that is that at the beginning of Esther 1, he was throwing a six-month party to convince his kingdom to go to war with him and go capture that part of the known world that wasn't yet his, ancient Greece. But what we know from history is that he tried that, and he failed. Perhaps like the plotline of the movie 300, the little Greek army was able to fight back against him, and he, the Persian king, was left humiliated. And so he's had a rough time of it. And so he needs some comfort. And so the young men in his kingdom notice this. But yes, the king has had women since, but he hasn't yet had a king, a queen. And so he, his, his, his public reputation hasn't yet been restored after he got rid of Vashti. And so we read in verse 2, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And so to find a new queen, there's this grand idea. 
a beauty pageant, Miss Persia. But the beauty pageant is merely to get into the competition. Because if you read the detail, the, the real competition is actually one in bed with the king, whoever could please him most. And that reiterates something we, we picked up last week, that this kingdom, this time in this place, it purely exists to serve the pleasure and the power of the king. It wasn't like this was a voluntary competition. Rather, these people were sent out throughout the kingdom to go and find the most beautiful women. If you were pretty, this would be your new life, taken from their families, from their futures, and essentially incarcerated in amongst this harem, serving the most powerful man in the world. We know from history, too, that, that something similar would happen with men. Herodotus, the, the Greek historian I mentioned last week, he tells us that every single year, 500 men would be taken from Babylon and Assyria and castrated to serve the Persian court. And so everyone in this kingdom existed to serve the king. But in the midst of that context, we meet a new character. Verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And so there is some key information. There's a lot of biographical account in one single sentence about this Mordecai. There's a history lesson if we double-click into where he comes from. Up until this point in the story, there's been nothing in the book of Esther that has connected us to the rest of the Old Testament. There's been nothing to connect us that why are we here? Why are we focused in Susa? Why are we even thinking about what's going on here with Ahasuerus? But here we get the connection. Now we are told that Mordecai is a Jew, a descendant of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now if that means nothing to you, let me bring you up to speed. I said it last week, but I left some significant gaps. In the Old Testament, it begins, the story that God is crafting begins by calling out Abraham from a place nearby, Susa, in Ur, 1,500 kilometres from Jerusalem. And he promises that man, even though he's old and his wife is barren, that through you, I'm going to make a family through whom the whole world will be blessed. A family of faith in God, a family who trusts in the Lord, and that trust is counted as righteousness. If you don't know your Old Testament, let me make it clear. The first 17 books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, are just a chronological, historical account of God doing just that, of making a people from Abraham through to the 17th book is Esther. The other 22 books in the Old Testament are poems and psalms and wisdom and prophecies that happened within the history of the first 17 books that help us ride the ups and the downs of the spiritual state of those people whom God was drawing out of the world and calling to himself. And so the story tracks through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel, and it shifts from the, the patriarchs through to becoming clans or tribes, and Moses leads those tribes in the wilderness coming out of Egypt, and then 40 years in the wilderness, but he dies on the edge of the promised land, and so his understudy, Joshua, takes over the tribes, and he's now leading Israel into the promised land in the book of Joshua, and then they 
kind of mature as a people and they need a little bit more governance. And so judges arise. And so it goes from Joshua, judges. And in that, there's the story of Ruth. And there's judges who are leading the tribes of Israel. And then again, the people kind of mature again, but it's really, it's immaturity. They, they look at the other nations and think, hey, we need a king. We don't have a king. We've got judges. We want a king. And so they call for a king. And the prophet Samuel finds someone, King Saul, the oldest son of Kish, who we have reference here from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul outwardly is tall and handsome, but inwardly he's small and he's cowardly. And so he's not someone whom the, the crown can hang on for a long time. During his reign, we hear about this long-standing hostility between the, the line that God's creating through Abraham and the line of the king Agag, the king of the Amalekites. That's going to come up again next week. But Saul kind of fails, and so his kingdom or kingship gets given to little David, the shepherd boy. He rises to be perhaps the greatest king Israel has known, but he has a son, Solomon, who's incredibly wise but doesn't lead very well. And so because of Solomon, what eventuates is that Israel is split into two. You've got Israel in the north, and then you've got Judah in the south, made up of Judah and Benjamin. And those 10 tribes in the north, in 720, end up getting completely destroyed, such is their disobedience as a judgment from the Lord. And then in 586 BC, the tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, get captured by Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon. And so we meet here in the book of Esther, this Mordecai, a Jew. And as we meet him, the alarm bells in our heads, given all that context, should be going off. That here we are at the end of what seems like the story that God is writing. And we know that there's going to be 400 years of silence after this. Our alarm bell should be going off. Uh-oh, these guys are in danger. Something bad is going to happen. And we're at the edge of where God has worked before right back at the beginning where he called out Abraham here in the edge of the kingdom in Susa. And so yes, Nehemiah and Ezra, they're books that are going to come a little bit later in terms of uh, giving us some history in the decades to follow. But for now, as we meet Mordecai the Jew, we should be thinking these guys are in trouble. Now, whenever we read the word Jew in Esther, these days we might be prone to link that to someone who comes from the ethnic state of Israel. What we should read, given its Old Testament context, is we should think the people of God, the people who are trusting in God. Mordecai, one of the people of God. Those people that God has been crafting together, calling out from the world for a thousand years. Those people that God has been protecting, redeeming, rescuing, providing for. The people that God has been pointing toward the fulfillment of all of his promises. Mordecai is one of those people. Mordecai, the Jew, is one of those people. Now, I tell you all that. I insert that larger story into this sermon because if you know the big story of God that he's been crafting in the world, it will change your life. No exaggeration. It will change your life to know that story. Because the story of Esther isn't about Esther, but about situating Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in this bigger story that God is writing. And when we see that about Esther, that it's not actually about her, we can actually see it too about ourselves, that our life isn't about us. My life isn't about me. My life is about finding myself within the bigger story that God is writing in the world. 
See, what happens when we don't know that bigger story is we become the biggest story in our lives. We become little mini celebrities in our own heads, huge fish in a tiny pond. And everything that happens in our life comes through this filter of how it affects us and how it might look to others as they think about us. And so we blow ourselves up in our heads. But humans weren't made to be celebrities. Humanity was not made to be famous. It always goes bad. And we see that, don't we, sometimes in the church. Celebrity pastors become incredibly large whale-like fish in incredibly tiny bathtubs. And it never goes well. But instead, when we put ourselves in the bigger story of God, think of the freedom, think of the humility, think of the security and assurance we can have knowing that whether we live or we die, whether our life is a, is a, a flourishing epitome of peak physical health or we are consigned to, to years of chronic distress, whether we get rich or finances are, are always a struggle for us, whether we get to buy our forever home or we rent for all of our lives, whether we accomplish that bucket list that we simply have to do before we die or some of our hopes and our dreams are left unmet, whether we reach the upper echelons of our industry and are incredibly respected and admired by our colleagues and our peers or we never get on the promotion track, whether we get married and have kids and fulfill all the kind of family life stage goals that we have or we stay and enjoy our single life. Whether you're seen as a success in your own eyes or in the eyes of your peers or not, what a truly biblically successful life is, is living out your life in the midst of the bigger story of God. Putting yourself, situating yourself under the hand of God, knowing that he is writing a story with your life, with my life, with our life, with us together as his people. And when we know that, we can take more risks for the gospel's sake, knowing that he's the one writing the story. We can have mental and emotional resilience in the midst of hardship when we might face persecution or, or suffering because God's with us, crafting this. We can handle suffering differently. We can set our expectations correctly. We can embrace not being the center of attention because this world is about God and what he wants to bring about. And so get yourself in the biggest story of what God is doing. It will change your perspective. But after hearing a little bit about that bigger story in Mordecai, as we meet him, let's keep going and we're going to meet the other main character in this story. Let's talk about Esther and the complexity of the story. Verse 7, talking about Mordecai, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as, her own, as his own daughter. And so Esther and Mordecai are cousins here, but it appears to us that Mordecai's got some years on her. And so he adopts her like a daughter. And we've just been shown the heritage to which Mordecai, now Esther, have been born into. At the same time, we're immediately shown the complexity of the current situation because we're told that Esther has two names. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, and yet she seemingly hides her Jewish name and rather goes by her Persian name, Esther. 
And so that tells us that for all that richness and that heritage and that, that line that they are stepping into, it's complicated. It is dangerous to be one of God's people. And so Esther is, is entered into uh, the competition and therefore into the harem. And now perhaps as we, we meet Esther and hear about her, her beautiful looks and how she's now been put forward toward this, this competition, we might be prone to kind of pigeonhole her into the, the stereotypes that come with being particularly attractive and assume that maybe Esther is a little bit dull. Now, beauty pageants don't have a great reputation for bringing together the, the world's brightest. Uh, one of the all-time moments that became a meme a few years ago was when Miss South Carolina uh, became top five in, in Miss Teen USA and she had to answer a tough question. You might have heard this. She had to answer the question, recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the US on a world map. Why do you think this is? And so she stepped up to the microphone and she said, I personally believe that, that US Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps. And I believe that our education, like such as in South Africa and uh, uh, the Iraq, you know, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere like such as, uh, I believe that they should, you know, our education over here in the US should help the US or, or perhaps should help South Africa or should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we can all be able to build up a better future. <laughs> and everyone clapped her and gave her a round of applause. Well, just to, just to pop that stereotype, lest we be prone to put Esther in the same category, we're going to see that there's more to the pretty face of Esther. Actually, there's this, there's this mysterious favour upon her that seems to follow her wherever she goes. Some unseen force, who might it be, who is leading her to meet the right people, hear the right advice, be in the right place at the right time. We'll see how that plays out. And so she finds favour with this chief eunuch, Haggai. He likes her, he provides for her, he sets her up for success. We're told in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Again, tells us it's dangerous to be one of God's people. And this isn't so much because they're Jewish, it's not so much what we would know as anti-Semitism today, but rather it's dangerous to worship the God of Israel because that might undercut what was meant to be wholesale commitment, loyalty, worship of Ahasuerus, the God King. And so they need to keep it quiet. And so Esther and Mordecai go along with what is effectively a, this kind of sex competition. It's unethical, it's abusive, but adding more complexity to the characters that we meet in this story. Not simply just heroes we should emulate, we actually see that they, they go along with it. You might know a bit about this, the book of Daniel and the character of Daniel. You know that story again and again. He and his friends refused to eat the king's food. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to the giant statue of the king and they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Daniel himself refused to abide by the laws of the king at the time and he continued to pray to the God of Israel and he got caught for it and he got thrown into the lion's den again and again and again. He stands up against the king and the kingdom and anything unjust they might see here. Esther and Mordecai are taking a different approach. They're working within the system rather than against it. We're also struck by the fact that Hey, this is 1,500 kilometres away from Jerusalem. And so 50 years ago, Esther and Mordecai were let, their, their people were free, 
You, you, you can go back to Jerusalem. Go back to where the promised land that God gave you. And yet here they are, having not gone back. And so we see the complexity to Esther and Mordecai. And as we watch on them, it should lead us to grow in our own self-awareness for the kind of world that we live in and the kind of flesh that we inhabit. Because like this world, our world is dangerous. And like these people, we ourselves, we're malleable. We're vulnerable human beings. And perhaps like them, their, their courage and their conviction ebb and flow based on the pressures, the things that are coming against them in the world. Maybe you feel that. Maybe that's just like us. In the really popular book, Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia series, he uh, envisions the whole book is kind of correspondence between this, this pretend devil, uh, the senior devil being Screwtape, and his junior understudy, Wormwood, trying to kind of disciple him into being a better devil. And they talk about how best to trick people into not believing in God and instead becoming more and more worldly. And there's this part where the junior devil comes up with this bright idea. All he needs is to convince his Christian that he's trying to attempt to do a really big sin, kill somebody or something, something like that. Just do something scandalous and then he will have got him. But then Screwtape tells him that actually the opposite is true. That it's the small compromises that really make a difference. He says this, you'll say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Sums up the, the complexity of our life in this world. And we can, we can know we're in a big, grand, glorious story that God is writing in the world. And yet at the same time, there's another story sold to us. The, the citadel of worldly power sells itself to us. It's, it's enticing. It's, it's alluring. And if your heart is, is anything like mine, you can feel pulled between stories. But yes, on your best days, you, you want to stand out for God. You pray as you walk into the office, God, give me your spirit that I might stand up in bold courage today. But it's intimidating. You might undermine your place in the company. You might cut short your career. What, what will happen? You won't be able to provide for your kids if you stand out too much. You want to be a person of integrity in the midst of this world, and yet you know, hey, if you just forge that signature, things will just be easier. If you just oversell this project and exaggerate this and that, you'll, you'll be praised. You get more billable hours, you get, you get more work done. You want to be a light, but it's quicker and more comfortable. Just, just turn the dimmer down and just go along with the flow. At the moment, I'm enjoying running, which is an oxymoron, enjoyment and running, but it's a miracle. And what I've noticed as I run is, you know, when you, when you run and there's, there's wind, it can be really annoying. But when there's wind and you're running into the wind, you really feel it. It feels like you're running with a parachute. 
It's like holding you back. But when you run and the wind is at your back pushing you forward, it's as if there's no wind. You don't feel it. You don't feel that the wind is, is, is helping you out. You just think, man, I'm so fit. I'm, I'm incredible today. I'm in great form. When actually, no, you're, you're being artificially pushed on, but you don't feel it. And it's a broader principle that when we're actually battling against the winds of worldliness, oh, it feels hard. It's temptation. You've got to think about it. You've got to, you've got to tell your friends, please pray for me as I go into this moment. But when you're just going along, going with the flow, like a dead fish being taken down the stream, you, you just, you're going along with the values, the priorities, the principles of this world in which we live. It just feels natural. It feels normal. And so when we do that, little by little, compromise by compromise, gradually our hearts will just get used to staying silent. We slide down the gentle slope and the gradient is so gentle we don't, we don't really feel it. Soon enough, we Christians, we start looking, sounding, deciding. Our reflex responses become exactly like the world and those who know nothing of the God of the Bible and the incredible story of his grace. And so what we need, what Esther is reminding us of here, is that this bigger story that God is writing in the world needs to be louder in our hearts and in our minds than the story that the world is selling us. Bigger than that that pathway that the world sets out for us. Birth, school, fun, career, family, retirement, death. God's got something bigger for you. That yes, you might go through all those things, but you do them under the hand of God. That we might be people who build our house on the rock, not on the sand that when those waves inevitably come, are going to wash it away. Back to this story. It goes on. Let's see how it goes. Let's finally, let's talk about the hidden hand of the eternal author. It's Esther's turn in the harem. She's had 12 months of beautification. She's been set up by her friend, the chief eunuch, with the right kind of presence to take in to the king. She goes in. Apparently, it's a very successful night. The king is pleased. We're told in verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes in the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And so she's done it. This orphaned young Jewish woman has arisen to be the throne, the queen of the most powerful kingdom, next to the most powerful king in the known universe at the time. Now, of course, we know from what happened to Bashi that this is, a, this is a perilous state to be in. It's not some kind of tenure that she's got there in that position. But she does have the king's ear if she ever needs it. And that's important for our story to come. Immediately, we get a story that proves to us that actually it is a very helpful position to be in because we, we meet Mordecai in the king, at the king's gate. He must have worked for the government, so he was there by uh, the harem, by the, the king's gate. And there, while he's there, he just happens to be in the right place at the right time, overhearing that there's a plot to go against the king. A couple of eunuchs, at least, are out to get him. And so he's able to tell now the new queen, and she's able to pass it on to the king. And that story 
is able to get put into the scrapbook of the chronicles of the king. And so what I want to notice as, as our chapter comes to an end is to see through what's playing out here, the circumstances, the events, and see the handwriting of this divine author here in this story. Because this chapter has left a lot of breadcrumbs for us to follow toward him. I brought up Daniel's story before. Uh, you might be familiar with the story in Daniel chapter 5. It's where we get the, the phrase, the writing is on the wall from. In Daniel 5, there's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's come and, and taken over uh, Israel, exiled them, they're captive in Babylon. He passes away and his son Belshazzar rises to the throne, even more arrogant than his father. And he's having a party, a lavish party, maybe a little bit like what we heard last week. It's pompous, it's, it's the splendor, it's, it's majestic, it's all for his glory. And he's so arrogant that he takes the cutlery that was stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and drinks out of it and, and gets everybody to kind of, it's just like normal everyday cutlery. But it's God's cutlery. And so in the midst of that great moment of arrogance, we hear that this human hand was seen writing on the wall. And it was writing, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Daniel comes along later and is able to interpret it for the king. And the interpretation is, it's the end of your kingdom. You are being taken down and God will give your kingdom to someone else. And what we know from history is that that very night, Belshazzar died and his kingdom was given to the Persians who we meet here in Esther. That is a famous story for being able to see the, the, hand, the literal handwriting of God himself. But we see something similar here in Esther. Because who was ultimately responsible for Esther being so beautiful? The God who knit her together. Who was responsible for this mysterious attraction and favour that she seems to accrue everywhere she goes, particularly with the people who she needs it from, the chief eunuch? Or the grace and favour that she got with the king and his heart being one toward her? Who is it that, that holds the king's heart in his hands? Or who is it that, that, that put Mordecai, who just happened to be in the right place at the right time, to somehow mysteriously overhear the insider knowledge and get his name in the story of the King's Chronicles. Of course, the answer for all these is, is God himself. And so we come to the end of this introduction here to the, Esther, the, the book of Esther. Yes, we, on the one hand, we see this intimidating power, the, the king of Persia. But for all his power, he himself is manipulated by a higher power, the hand of God himself, the hidden hand who is setting up this story to show off what God always shows off, that he is so powerful that he will use weak people to defeat the strong. That's what he was doing with Abraham and Sarah, old and barren, and yet making a family that now takes up some, or includes some 2.5 billion people that claim to follow Jesus. Well, we know the story of King David, a small shepherd boy who walked out in front of raging, slobbering, 10-foot Goliath and felled him with a simple stone. Over and over again, throughout the story that God is writing, he writes it in such a way that he sticks it up, those who gloat and goad and laugh in their pompous power. He's laughing at them. We're seeing it again here. God is the most powerful being in the universe. And we can be grateful that that is true because it tells us that the people who purport to be the powers in our world today, the people that we see serving 
themselves. The people that we see structuring the world in a way that they will get the financial returns. Those self-interested, self-serving powers that operate on our TV screens or on our socials. Who is ultimately in charge of our world? It's not the figures who purport themselves to be in charge, but the hidden hand of God behind the scenes. God is a God who exists not like Xerxes, so that everything else in the world would serve him, but so that he, as the supreme being, as God himself, would come down to serve us. As God is crafting this bigger story in the world so that you might see that, that he wants you, and he wants you to want him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be found amongst that, that people that he's calling out from the world. He wants you to be found amongst his family so that you might set apart your life to be in his hand, used for his purposes. Of course, God is using human history like this because his great divine plan was to come into history in the person of Jesus. And Jesus would live life perfectly in our place. He would die gruesomely in our place and he would rise again in victory for us and for our salvation. And so God wants us now to see that and to see Jesus and to give Jesus our hearts, our lives, and to help have him use our lives in his story. And so as we look at Esther 1 and 2, we see the powers at work in our world, but we need not fear because the power is over them. God himself is the one who is in charge, a power who doesn't exist for self-service but to serve us. And let me invite you today. You could be served by him right now. You can be served by the king of the universe, God himself, right now. You can have your guilt taken away as your sins are forgiven. You can have your isolation and sense of, hey, it's just me in this world replaced. And God will invite you into his family, full of brothers and sisters that you're rubbing shoulders with right now. That we're all in this together. His people called out from the world to encourage, to empower, to get alongside each other and help walk this life, this story out with one another. And in a moment, we're going to come to his communion table and we're going to share in that together. And you're invited through his body and his blood to feast on him in your hearts by faith. Communion is really small. It's not going to fill your stomach. But communion offers us the chance to fill our souls, to be reminded that, that, that we take this very small meal, to be reminded that man shall not live by bread alone, that Jesus is the bread of life who has given his body for us, who has shed his blood for us. And so we're going to do that right now. Uh, and as we, we do that, let me commend you that invitation to be served by God this morning by opening up your heart to him. Let me pray, uh, and then let's celebrate communion together. God Almighty, uh, we thank you that you are the divine author who is writing a story in our world, a story so epic, a story so incredible, a story so gracious, so generous, that we in our nature, our human nature of sin and, and flesh, would be so prone to miss it if you didn't reveal it to us. And so by your Holy Spirit, would you, for each one of us in this room right now, open up our hearts, open up our minds in such a way that we see your work in our life, that we see your work in the world, in history, in the book of Esther, but we know that it doesn't stop there. 
how this story leads all the way to Jesus. And Jesus' story invites us to find ourselves within it. Lord, would you help us this morning, wherever we're from, whatever kind of uh, week, morning we've had, whatever emotional state that we are in, Lord, we need to be served by you. Because on our own, we're sinful. On our own, we're broken. On our own, we're victims and victimizers. On our own, we need help, the help of the King. And so, Lord, would you, as you gave divine favor and grace to Esther, to Mordecai, and we'll see more of that to come, Lord, would you give your divine favor and grace to us this morning? That as you change the hearts of people in this story, would you change our hearts to be soft toward you, to be open to what you want to do in our lives, to deposit in us a sense of integrity, a sense of courage and conviction that holds on to you in the midst of the world in which we live? And would you deposit in us a great love for Jesus and a gratitude for what you've done in him, that this morning, right now, as we come to your table, we might feast upon you in our hearts by faith. We might be encouraged. We might be empowered. We might be filled up in our spirit so that we can live for you and live within your biggest story. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.